In 1943, an author by the name of Philip Van Doren Stern wrote a book that he aimed to be a then-modern variation on Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Only instead of a miser looking to change his ways, the main character in Stern's book was a man who went through a series of anguish and personal pain and started to wonder what life would be like if he was never born. The book, called The Greatest Gift, was published one year later and became one of the best-selling books of 1944. One year later, at the suggestion of RKO studio chief Charles Kerner, director Frank Capra read The Greatest Gift and immediately saw its film potential. In 1945, RKO, anxious to unload the project, sold the rights to Capra's production company, Liberty Films. Capra, along with writers Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, Joe Swirling, Michael Wilson, and Dorothy Parker turned out to make a movie that, surprisingly, would not become the most popular movie of 1946, but it would still become one of the most important movies ever made. The rest is history. Practically since television existed, TV viewers can't go a single year without having to subject themselves to what is arguably one of the greatest movies of all time. The tale of how It's a Wonderful Life went from being a modest, life-affirming movie with a less-than-average box office for its time to inescapable TV success story thanks to its lapse in copyrights is the stuff of legend. So much so that we won't bore you with the details on how the movie itself became the icon of the holidays that it is today, and will probably remain so long after the rest of us are dead. But what we will talk about is the fact that the movie itself has become so intertwined with pop culture since it was released in 1946 that having other forms of media show their appreciation for the film seem like a foregone conclusion. Practically everybody and their mother has tried to do their own version of It's a Wonderful Life since the dawn of television. And for the most part, the homages that are made range from the perfect... Oh, Mary, Mary, I never realized I had so many friends! And, and a, a man who, who has a friend is a rich man, that's what Clarence said, my golly, he was right. To the okay... Don't be afraid, little one. No offense, but... Are you coming on to me? <laughs> Are you ready? To the recipient of a participation trophy. I wish I had never picked up Lucy in my van. Now, if you'll excuse me. But no matter who's doing the parody of George Bailey's life, struggles, and wishing he was never born, one common thread that can be made from just about all of the parodies and homages, that one person can make a difference in other people's lives, and that the subtraction of that one person could wind up altering all those other lives for the worse. The key words in that statement being, just about all. Because ladies and gentle demons, we would not be doing our jobs here in the underworld if we didn't try to attempt to find something that would prove to be the exception to the rule. You may think it'd be impossible to find, but we found it. A variation on It's a Wonderful Life that not only goes against what the original story was all about, but pretty much does what it could to destroy the legacy of what was once the most popular show on television during half of its own wonderful life. And if anybody can find a way to make a good thing go bad, this man can. He didn't have a mother. I don't have a wife. You don't exist. You're just a bad memory. Doesn't know when to go away. And now, fun for the whole family. This is Tele-Hell. Last season, we presented a snapshot into the world of the one TV show in hell that we don't consider to be a torture. Partly because when you have a character like J.R. Ewing at the helm of it, his antics would be enough to make our own boss blush. And really, who could blame him? Dallas had enough drama, sex, and intrigue over its 14-season run to make manufactured reality TV shows appear obsolete. Because I don't want to repeat myself too much, I'm going to give you exactly 45 minutes to find and listen to episode 45, where we go to great and hasty lengths to discuss the show's 1985-86 dream season, just so you can be brought up to speed. Go ahead. I'll be right here. 
So, how's everybody's holiday so far? I know Hanukkah was super early this year, but I guess they wanted to get that out of the way. I know items are still stranded overseas thanks to all the shipping stuff, and you can thank the treachery floor for that. Anything worth buying this year? I wouldn't know, because the only things we get down here are items that have been factory recalled for being defective, or things that no longer exist. Surprisingly, my Palm Pilot gets good reception down here. Okay, you're back? Good. Because now you know, more or less, what happened in Dallas's first nine seasons on the air. Now, it's time for you to find out what happened in the following five seasons after that. And just as before, we know we want to get to the point. So, just as before, we're only going to tell you what happened in the show's cliffhangers as well as any new characters that joined the show during this time. Because chances are, we're going to come across some of them a little later on. Keep in mind, we're going to be leaving out a lot of details on purpose. So I don't want to get any letters saying that we've missed any plot points or any other characters. Because that's going to be intentional here. However, once we get to season 14, we do feel the need to list off the key details that happened in that year in order for today's subject to make a lick of sense. And once again, again, I feel that this can be done in 6 minutes and 66 seconds. Stopwatch, please. And hopefully I don't pass out from exhaustion once again. Here we go. Season 10 of the show picks up where the season 9 cliffhanger of Bobby appearing in Pam's shower left off. Bobby assuring his wife that everything she dreamed the previous season was exactly that, minus asking what family guy was. It's over. None of that happened. While at the same time, the return of Bobby also meant that there was no longer a need for a Jack Ewing from the previous year. Which, unfortunately, also meant the end of the line for one Mr. Jack Rambo. Which is just as well, because I used up just about every space mutiny name that you could think of. All the while, Ewing Oil and Weststar Oil kept battling each other over who can become the more dominant oil company. While that's happening, Pam finds out that ten years after her accident in the original miniseries, she's actually able to have a baby. Just in time for her car to crash into an oil tanker. A.K.A. Victoria Principal didn't want to do the show anymore. He thinks I can carry a baby to full term. Oh, honey, that's wonderful. Season 11 sees an injured Pam leaving the country for reasons that we really don't get into until much later on. Bobby would eventually rebound with a girl named April, played by that lady from the original Walker, Texas Ranger. The blonde one. As for JR, not only is his fight to keep Ewing Oil out of West Star's hands ramping up, but his relationship with Sue Ellen hits new lows. So much so that Sue Ellen not only begins divorce proceedings, but also starts a season-long affair with a man named Nicholas Pierce, a man who JR despises so much that in the season 11 cliffhanger, it resulted in the two of them fighting and JR accidentally throwing Pierce off a building, angering Sue Ellen so much that she becomes the second member of her family to shoot JR. I'd like to report a double murder. Of course, JR survives this in season 12, just in time for him to face off with his newest nemesis, Carter McKay, head of West Star Oil, played by Oscar winner George Kennedy. Between that and the continuing deterioration of his relationship with Sue Ellen, as well as a bitter custody battle over John Ross III, it seems as though it'll be a dark year for JR. Until that is, he meets Callie Harper, played by Kathy Podwell, an Alabama waitress about 30 years younger than JR and even further down on the poverty line than anybody living at South Fork. Through a series of circumstances involving a fake pregnancy, she becomes JR's new wife. And not a moment too soon, considering this was the season when JR and Sue Ellen finally divorce, thus freeing up Sue Ellen to date a British filmmaker played by Ian McShane who, thanks to that relationship, put together a secret theatrical film about J.R. and Sue Ellen's lives, though mostly J.R.'s. Season 12 ends with Sue Ellen, a.k.a. Linda Gray, leaving the show and her character behind by threatening J.R. that if he does anything to hurt her ever again, the film will be released to the public. And then, J.R., you will be the laughing stock of Texas. You'll never know if or when I plan to make it public just to humiliate you. In season 13, JR and Callie get married, but wind up with a rocky marriage when it's revealed that JR has a son with one of Bobby's former girlfriends. His name is James, and ironically enough, he would be played by the guy who would later go on to play Patrick Duffy's dumb nephew on Step by Step. 
You know the guy. Fruit not blows me away. <laughs> Between him being a thorn in JR's side, Bobby getting married to April, and more wheeling and dealing that causes Ewing Oil to lose money and getting crushed under West Star's thumb, and a failed run at politics, the season 13 cliffhanger sees JR voluntarily committing himself to an insane asylum, where he almost gets out of it, but then new son James tears up the release papers, presumably shacking JR up in the wacko basket forever. It's payback time. You're in here for good. What? Easy, Mr. Ewan. He's got my release papers. Not anymore. And that was the easy part of the summary. Let's see, three and a half minutes? Plenty of time. JR is stuck in the sanitarium for the first three episodes, ultimately getting sprung on the condition that Callie, at her insistence, never sees JR again. But before that happens, Bobby and April are enjoying their honeymoon in Paris, where she's immediately kidnapped and murdered by Susan Lucci, who plays the head of an environmental group dead set against the oil industry. A few episodes later, April's sister Michelle gets her revenge by gunning down Lucci at South Fork. After those storylines come to an end, the matter of the fate of Ewing Oil is left up in the air thanks to a series of bad business decisions, because the 1980s weren't exactly the best years for the oil business, and this was also the start of the first Gulf War. Bobby, who by this point in the show was the majority shareholder of Ewing Oil, decides to sell his share of the company against JR's wishes. And unless you've seen every episode, you'll never guess who Bobby plans on selling the company to. Not in a million years. very well be the last true gasp of greatness the show ever had. Dallas brought on none other than Barbara Eden to reunite with Larry Hagman for a six-episode storyline that now sees her character, also an oil magnate, not only getting revenge on JR for knocking her up in her youth and getting an abortion that prevented her from having future children, but also owning Ewing Oil long enough to pass actual day-to-day operations to April's sister, Michelle, which she accepts as part of a revenge ploy against JR because Michelle and James were an item, but JR split them up for reasons. More drama between the company formerly known as Ewing Oil and Weststar continues right up until the series' penultimate episode, where Michelle is arrested for murder, JR tries to spring her on the condition that she sells her share of Ewing Oil back to JR, which he later finds out is now 50% owned by his oldest rival, Cliff Barnes. And through a complicated mix-up, JR, mistakenly thinking that he is about to become the chairman of Weststar Oil, sells the rest of his Ewing Oil shares to Cliff Barnes, only for Dragline from Cool Hand Luke to give him the bad news. I'm the majority stockholder now, JR, and tomorrow I'm putting my own man in. You can kiss your dream of becoming chairman goodbye, too. Between losing control of both companies and having everybody he ever cared for seemingly desert him, this left J.R. Ewing, once one of the greatest masterminds in all of TV fiction, alone, depressed, drunk, and moping around his own house while wearing a Mr. Rogers sweater all the while carrying a gun that once belonged to his father, Jock Ewing. A far cry from George Bailey jumping off a bridge, but the overall sentiment is there. Everybody got that? Good! Which brings us to the main question. Who does our anti-hero turn to when there's nobody left to turn to? That question is answered for us in the series' final episode, simply known as Conundrum. An episode that was two hours long, 90 minutes without commercials. So, this means our TV movie rules will apply here. Anything that we have to criticize will be based strictly on this show and nothing else surrounding it. May 3rd, 1991. The end of Operation Desert Storm gives George H.W. Bush the highest approval rating he would ever get during his presidency. Hockey player Cam Neely would retire prematurely from injuries, but would later go on to play sea bass in Dumb and Dumber. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central, after being treated to all the great cliffhangers that the show would give us over the years, as well as giving us a glimpse at that episode's special guest stars, which we're not going to spoil just yet, we rejoin JR at South Fork, where he carries on more than Tommy Wiseau after getting dumped, only with an accent that you could easily understand. Damn if I'm dead or alive. I think I'd all be happier if I'd never been a part of the Ewing family. Huh. I'd be happier if they'd never done a J.R. Ewing, that's for damn sure. Well, if you know the story of It's a Wonderful Life... 
This is the part where Clarence falls into the river. We don't get a splashdown, but we do get a very special guest as JR's guardian angel. Forgive me for interrupting, I just couldn't help it, but you were about to kill yourself? What are you, a burglar or something? Put your hands up, boy. No, I'm not a burglar. The only thing I'm interested in here is you, pal. Now, if the voice of this angel doesn't sound familiar to anybody, let me give you a hint the size of a wrecking ball. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. That's right. Oscar winner Joel Grey will be playing our Clarence today. Seems like pretty decent choice. He's affable, non-threatening, looks good in a white suit. Seems like a no-brainer. Unfortunately, JR isn't quite sure if he's had too much to drink or not. The thing is, I was just passing by, more or less, when I uh, heard you mumbling something about people being happier if they'd never been a JR Ewing. Anyway, uh, I think you were about to do yourself in, so I'll just wait here while you finish the job. Okay, a little strange to see somebody on the opposing side of the afterlife use reverse psychology, or maybe it isn't. Maybe angels like to psych people out. Have a here do I know. And not unlike It's a Wonderful Life, we've got the usual introductory pleasantries where the guy being haunted by the angel doesn't have a clue what's going on. Why don't we find out if indeed the world would have been a better place if there had never been a J.R. Ewing? And I don't know how you ended up here, but I'm going to call the boys of the straitjack and have them come pick you up. Well, you would know, considering you've spent several episodes this season locked up there. But seriously, JR, how often does one get to take part in an opportunity like this? Aside from the... Several dozen times it's taken place on other TV shows. And all because sometimes it's fun to play What If. Hey, it worked for Marvel, didn't it? So, come on, take chances with a stranger in a white suit that you just met and take off on this existential journey. Well, if you're so damn smart, how come you didn't mention the fact that Cliff Barnes now owns Ewing Oil? What Ewing Oil? Without you, Ewing Oil would no longer exist. Oh, of course it would. With or without me. My daddy founded that company. That's true. But it's what happened to it interesting. And we're off as the Master of Ceremonies shows us what the precious oil company would look like if JR were never around. Ah, uh, say, miss, can you tell me where I am, please? Hello? She acts like I'm not even here. Bingo. Why don't you just look on this as sort of a metaphysical trip where we're here, but we're not really... And since you never existed, how can anyone see or hear you? Oh, I'm way ahead of you. <coughs> hey, man. What if the oil you drill underground was actually black goo that came from the dinosaurs? Whoa! This is Ewing Oil. Or at least we're in what used to be the Ewing Oil building. When the uh, company went bankrupt, this insurance company took it over. Without you, Gary was the oldest brother. When Jock got ready to retire, he turned the company over to him. And for those who need a reminder of who Gary Ewing was, look a little further to the west in California, where the town of Knott's Landing is located. Gary was played by actor Ted Shackelford. My name is Rusty Shackelford. Shackelford. No, that would be his conspiracy theory-prone brother. But I digress. Gary was only on Dallas for a few seasons in the early years before getting the spin-off in 1979. Here, however, it turned out that running the oil company into the ground was enough to put both Jock Ewing and Miss Ellie into the same area. And while I'm sure a therapist would eventually untangle that guilt trip, Gary still had to press forward somehow. Look at this! These socks cost me $40 a pair! I know that, Mr. Ewing. You scum. You put mom and daddy into the ground and you're living here in this Playboy mansion. How do you get all this money anyway? Uh, wanna take this one, Harvey? I'm a lawyer! That's right. In this world, Gary is one of the highest paid lawyers in Los Angeles. Which means that there's a parking spot reserved for him down here in hell when the time comes. 
Just how big a shark has Gary become? I think we'll give up our demand for the Palm Springs house. But I'm going to want something in return. In return, she relinquishes all claim to the Bel Air house, the Malibu house, and the place in Aspen. I think we can live with that. Then it's done. And done again. I'll see you about again. Well, why don't we? <laughs> so while we ponder the thought of Gary joining the cast of L.A. Law, let's also take care of a time paradox at the same time. In a world without a J.R., naturally, there'd have to be somebody else to fill the void of the family. Take it away, convenient phone call. Jason, why are you calling me at this hour? No, I'm not going to be in Dallas for the presentation. As far as I'm concerned, you're a selfish little jerk and the world's worst excuse for a brother. I suppose this is meant to be some semblance of fan service to the Dallas hardcore, because back in the early years of the show, and also a TV movie literally called Dallas the Early Years, there was a Jason Ewing. He was Jock Ewing's brother, and would also give the show Jenny Lee Harrison as Jamie Ewing for about two seasons. From what I understand, Jason Ewing was sort of the asshole of the family. And as we can see from Jason 2.0, the apple doesn't rot far from the tree. Hey, hey, the man of the hour. Our hero. Bringer of affordable housing to the great unwashed. Just as long as they got their 10% down. To add insult to injury, it turns out this brother from a different mother physical plane did something that would have made Miss Ellie roll in her grave were it not for selling the land that she lived on first. After Miss Ellie died... Jason managed to maneuver Bobby and Gary out of their shares of South Fork. Wait a minute. That cheap hustler owned South Fork? Is that what you're saying? Not exactly. He didn't feel the same way about it that you did. This is South Fork. Doesn't look the same, does it? Granted, South Fork Estates doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Pottersville, but then again, the homes themselves seem to look like they were made in Bailey Park. So, let's call that change to the universe a toss-up. Act 2 starts with a look at the life of Sue Ellen Shepard. No JR means no Ewing name to attach to herself. Instead, she's one of the biggest stars on daytime TV as we see her hosting a morning show. I'm going to do my best to fill your shoes. Just as long as your bra stays filled, honey. You won't have to worry about the shoes. I don't use padding. Just between the ears. I hope you know how to read the news on your back, Kimberly. I heard that's where you were when you got the job. Cut it! Wonderful! Okay, let's move to the oh, third floor. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sue Ellen, I'm going to miss you so much. Oh, did I say morning show? I meant the morning show, about 30 years before it ever existed, and Jennifer Aniston was stuck doing the Ferris Bueller sitcom. You know, that's three times this year I brought that up. I should probably do something about that. Anyway, yes, Sue Ellen is a soap opera actress who just ended her run on a popular TV show, not unlike when she left Dallas a few seasons earlier. But at least she left the show on relatively good terms in spite of a reported budget cut that took place after season 12. Here, life doesn't quite imitate art that closely, but that doesn't mean you can't still get screwed over by showbiz. When do we get the script? Well, they'll, uh, they'll have some pages for you by the weekend. Well, pages? Why not the whole script? Well, see, the thing is, they, uh, they want you to test. Well, I, I thought they knew me. They wanted me. Oh, they do, baby, they do, they do. But see, there's this new director, and, well, he's really not quite sure, you know. Well, he has seen my work. Well, actually, the thing is, he, uh, well, he's kind of young. He doesn't really know from soap operas. That's entertainment. So now that Sue Ellen seems to have painted herself into a corner of her career, J.R. can't help but gloat over the fact that she would have been nothing without him. That is, until we see another ghost from the past. Almost literally. Oh, that can't be. It's Nick Pierce. He died when he fell off the balcony. Dummy, dummy, dummy. He never met you. He moved to New York instead of Dallas. He's alive and well. Look. I don't believe it. That she was happy without ever having met you? We had something she'd never have with any other man. That's right. Misery, pain, and good times. Misery, pain, and good times? Maybe if we put that to banjo music, that might have worked. Oh, murder and death and grief and sorrow. You have the world's worst memory. Sue Ellen was obviously going to be all right whether J.R. Ewing existed or not. 
So if you're keeping track so far, the lack of a J.R. Ewing in this world means that... His brother Gary would trade domestic life in Knott's Landing for being a high-priced lawyer. A non-existent brother would suddenly exist and sell off the family's home and land for some quick real estate money. And his first wife would have an acting career on pause, but would be married to somebody who actually cares about her. The score so far, JR 0, Suicide 3. Hopefully things go in JR's favor in Act 3 as Jennifer Grey's father brings us to what Bobby's life is like in a JR-free multiverse. Now, you would think that somebody like Bobby Ewing, long considered to be the good guy slash moral center of the show, would continue to do the same things no matter if JR existed or not. But for the sake of this being an It's a Wonderful Life parody, his is the life that gets altered the most in this story. Instead of being humble and moral like he always was, the first time we see Bobby in this show is, for a lack of a better term, the kind of person you would find living in Las Vegas. What about Bobby? Let's go see him. Where is he anyhow? He's living in Las Vegas. I was being sarcastic. I didn't think he'd actually be living there. But yes, the saintly brother of the Ewing family is now living in Sin City. We see him playing around a football with his parallel universe children in what might be a sneak preview of what life will be like when he plays a sitcom father the following season, which stands to reason because both Dallas and Step by Step were both Lorimar Productions. For all we know, this scene could have been a stealth screen test. Ah! We got you! Oh, we got you! You're touchdown! No touchdown, no touchdown, you're right. Oh, you guys are getting too big. I used to win all the time. That was some neat tackle, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was some neat tackle. I'm hungry, Daddy. Me too. Can we get some ice cream or something? Okay, so it looks like that Suzanne Summers' future TV husband's got a perfectly normal life without JR. And cue the Faustian twist in three, two... Bobby, you're two months behind in alimony and the support for the kids. What do you want me to do? Annie, I know. Things have been rough lately. Can't pick any winners? Look, I don't want to fight. I know you care about the kids, but they cost a lot of money and I need help. I'll get the money. I'll get it. Soon, Bobby. Huh. That doesn't seem twisty enough. So, Bobby's a divorced man who can't come up with child support and alimony payments. Scummy, yes, but not quite what I was expecting. Is there more? That's not Bobby. At least not the Bobby I know. It isn't. But you've forgotten what Bobby was like before he met Pam. Even your daddy called him the company pimp. Gary lost Ewing oil. Bobby never went into the oil business. After Miss Ellie died, he started drifting. He's just a small-time hustler. Still trying to get by on his looks and charm, and he's losing that. Don't do this to me. <laughs> Isn't it odd? Everybody always thought of you as the bad guy. As both JR and the Angel take a bit of a breather and put their trip into perspective. You really think I improved anybody's life just by being there? What do you think? Well, I don't think it matters, because in the end, everybody turned against me anyhow. I thought you were off that feeling sorry for yourself kick. I'm just saying what is. No, I'll tell you what is. You didn't improve everyone's life, not by a long shot, including the little lady who ended up in the South Fork pool. Of course, we can't end Dallas without paying lip service to the greatest TV cliffhanger of them all. The time when future trivia question answer and Sue Ellen's sister Kristen shot JR and turned a simple primetime soap into a powerhouse. It was you, Kristen. Who shot JR? But without ever sinking her claws into JR, she would instead sink her claws into. Mr. Powell from Charles in Charge? Well, this is a pleasant surprise. I didn't expect you to be so, uh. Well dressed. <laughs> right. Isn't there a little something we need to discuss? How much? What would you like to offer? Would 500 be enough? Everything's negotiable. You're under arrest, Mr. Smith. Or should I say judge, for soliciting? She may be a cop, but their pension fund will never see a penny of that money. <clears throat> oh, ye of little faith. That was fast. They're all the same. The minute they see that funny badge, they fall apart. And he was loaded, believe me. So instead of winding up dead in the Ewing's pool, JR's would-be shooter would be living it up as a con queen. Looks like we've reached our violet bit quota for the episode, minus the trick turning. JR Zero... Suicide 4. I 
Wait a minute, I'm getting word from an earpiece that you'll have to imagine that I'm wearing right now that the previous scene with Gary Ewing is being replayed. Let's go back to the cheap-looking law office set for the action. That's Valine. You told me they never met. And they haven't. Not till this minute. And just as we're paying lip service to the Who Shot J.R. cliffhanger, we also can't acknowledge the success of Dallas without further acknowledging the spinoff that it spawned, Knott's Landing, a show that would not have existed were it not for Gary Ewing hooking up with diner waitress Valine, played by Joan Van Ark, seen in this show rocking her best Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction haircut, but thankfully far less devious, as we find out that even in a parallel universe, some things are meant to be. There's going to be an awful lot of paperwork to plow through once it gets here. Um, Perhaps if you had some time now, we could go into it in greater detail. Fine. I have nothing present. You do understand that if we sit here in my office and talk, I'm going to have to bill you. And out of the office. I'm on my own. Perhaps a drink somewhere. Don't drink, never have, but um, dinner. Now, there's a chance to get some talking done. But not French. He's not going to end up with that southern trash. She's not the same hash house waitress you remember. (laughs) She couldn't have changed that much. You are a hard man. Just don't tell me he's going to marry her again. I'm not going to tell you anything except that things work out the way they were meant to. As you shall soon see. So now, a revised score. JR Zero, Suicide Five. And that signals the end of the first half. We'll find out in the second half if JR's life is still worth living. The score once again JR Zero, Suicide Five. And this literal and figurative game of life will continue. After the break. That's Thanksgiving 1985. It's a very sentimental time for all of us, but sometimes our words just aren't enough. So we borrowed some from a prayer found many years ago in a cathedral in Chester, England. Give me a good digestion, Lord, and something to digest. Give me a healthy body, Lord, with a sense to keep it best. Give me a mind that is not bored, that does not whimper, whine, or sigh. Let me not worry much about the fussy thing called I. Give me a sense of humor, Lord. Give me the grace to take a joke. To get some happiness from life and pass it on to other folks. And I want to wish the newest member of my family, my little granddaughter, Mary Noel, her first happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Linda. Happy Thanksgiving, Grandpa Henry. And happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Bye-bye. Bye. This week on Telehell's premium content of the Dan. Scientists at Fox Sports Laboratories are working on new technology. You won't believe your eyes. On January 20th, you will witness the biggest technological breakthrough in the history of sports. Don't miss the premiere at the NHL All-Star Game. Catch hockey's brightest stars Saturday, 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific on Fox. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way once again. That's patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to this week's torture. And now, back to the subject. So far, we've discovered that most of the people in JR's life are better off without him. A stark contrast to It's a Wonderful Life, where the people of Bedford Falls would have dramatically negative lives were it not for George Bailey sacrificing his own happiness and dreams. Even the angel is getting fed up with things, and we're only halfway through. Nobody said you had to like it, but it's the way it is, or would be. 
What's the difference? If you're not interested in what's going on with him, just pick up the gun and get it over with. Yeah, well, now what kind of an angel are you anyhow? You're supposed to be convincing me not to kill myself. So I'm not a hypnotist. I, I don't know what you are, and I don't care. But you do. That's your real problem. No matter how you try to deny it, you care. Nevertheless, the journey continues as we jump back to the man from Atlantis, now with a new lady by his side. And I'm sure if they were anything like how devoted Pamela Barnes and Jenna Wade were, Bobby's gonna be okay. No, I am not through. I know where you've been. You've been out trying to find some bookie that would take your action. Or be the kind of gold-digging, hair-teasing, nasal-voicing, ball-breaking Long Island stereotype that would be an insult to actual Long Islanders. Their marriage is exactly what you expect it to be. What I have been doing is trying to find a way to get us out of this hole. Well, you better do something because I am sick and tired of living like this. Do you think I gave up my job as a showgirl to end up in a dump like this? Thankfully, she's only in the show for a minute of our wonderful lives that we're never going to get back. So now, we get to the real reason why Bobby's life is in the crapper. He's in too deep with Captain Ed Hawken of Police Squad. Bobby, Bobby, you've been a very bad boy. <sighs> it's just a little losing streak, Mac. It's not serious. You've run up quite a tab at my tables and book. You've had my markers before. I've always paid off. You're into me for 50 big ones. Because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to give you 48 hours to come up with the money, or else I'll collect it from your next of kin. But two days, or you're a dead man. Say what you will about how far the show fell during its later years. But next to Larry Hagman and Patrick Duffy keeping the lights on, George Kennedy's Gravitas was a more than welcome addition to the show. And whether he's playing an oil magnate, or in this case, a Vegas pit boss, it's his intimidation in his roles that's made him an underappreciated heavy during the show's last three seasons. Unfortunately, saving graces can only do so much, as we move on to, arguably, the darkest timeline of the episode. Remember JR's other wife, Callie? Well, because she never met JR, she stayed below the poverty line. So far below that we're now about to take part in a lifetime TV movie. Ev, leave those kids alone. Don't want them hit? Then you keep them quiet. A scene so bleak that in the spirit of comparing things to It's a Wonderful Life, I'm going to play out the rest of this scene to the tune of that old-time favorite, Buffalo Girls. I'm sure it'll blend in nicely. Ain't you got no sense at all? Don't want you over there all the time. Poor Malvin. You know how bad that makes me look? Where the doctor? Forget it! Get my dinner. Kids are almost through. You let them eat in pace. <laughs> Shut your face. You hush up, too. I'm going to teach both of y'all a lesson. Leave me. Yeah, I'll leave me. Till I'm finished with you. You're never going to touch them again. Oh, my God. Now look how much different her life is. Something a little more wholesome in comparison, please? Oh, no, not him. Please. Or, to be more specific, JR's longtime rival, Cliff Barnes. Always a perennial loser in the Barnes Ewing feud. But without a Ewing, he can be free to be anything he wants to be and have a solid, loving family support him every step of the way. Help! He can even take on a government job. I had a meeting with the man last night, Edgar. He's very unhappy about the foot dragging that's going on. He does understand I'm doing my best. He told me to convey to you in no uncertain terms that he wanted action and he wasn't getting it. But did you explain my position? He doesn't care about your position. You know him, Edgar. He can be a very good friend or an implacable enemy. Yep. Without JR butting in, Cliff Barnes becomes focused enough to become Vice President of the United States. And considering this is taking place in alternate 1991, perhaps it'll be him who can't spell potato right and pick a fight with Murphy Brown. Hypothetically speaking, of course. Also hypothetically speaking, 
somebody reenacting the plot to the Kevin Klein movie Dave about two years before the fact. Cliff, what was that about? What's wrong? That was the chief of staff. The president has just had a stroke. As of now, I am the acting president of the United States. So the odds aren't exactly on JR's side right now to keep living. Hell, things are so bleak, even George Bailey would take a look at JR's wonderful life and think that going to prison for losing $8,000 would be a Club Med vacation in comparison. We return to Patrick Duffy, eagerly counting down the seconds until he can become a sitcom dad. By this point, his Long Island stereotype wife leaves him and takes everything but the kitchen sink. And with a loan shark deadline breathing down his neck, there's really only one person to turn to. Why is he calling that miserable cretin? You know how badly he needs money. He's going to try to borrow it from Jason. Oh, you'll never get a penny out of that idiot. Now, why didn't he call Gary or that half-breed Ray Krebs? They used to be buddies. He'd lend him some money. <laughs> Unfortunately for Bobby, Jock died before Ray ever found out he was a Ewing. Now, Ray's life, <sighs> that's really changed. Which segues us neatly to, not gonna lie, probably the nicest part of the whole episode, especially compared to poor housewives blowing away their hubby with a shotgun. We meet up with former South Fork ranch hand and half-brother to the Ewing family, Ray Krebs, played by Steve Canale. But as the cabaret angel just said, in this universe, he never found out that he was related to the Ewings. As such, in perhaps the biggest departure from George Bailey's story, Ray actually gets to live out the most normal and, quite honestly, the most wholesome of lives. The way I hear it, you had your falling out over a girl named Garnet McGee. Remember her? Little country western singer? How'd you know about that? You have the attention span of a rhesus monkey. An insult that I'm going to start using if anybody listening to future shows don't pay attention, but go on. To Ray Krebs, the world's best husband and father. With love from your family. Happy birthday. I don't know why the good Lord blessed me the way he did. Must be about the luckiest guy in this world. Happy birthday, Dad. Happy birthday. Come on, let's go light all them candles before I start crying. <laughs> as much as people remember Dallas for being this beacon of Reagan-era excess, it's almost too easy to forget that the show did have its share of quieter moments, which is largely unfortunate for most people because nobody tuned in to watch the quiet moments. They tuned in to see JR turn the screws on whoever got in his way that week. But in a case like this, where loose ends are appearing to be tied up, I honestly have no problem with this scene. Probably the antithesis of sticking out like a sore thumb, more like an uncut finger when the rest of the fist is bleeding. The most bleeding happening with Bobby's storyline, which, since it's the longest segment of the episode and I want to get out of here before hell freezes over, wraps up thusly. <gasps> Bobby tries to borrow money from Alternate Universe Jason, who refuses because he always considered Alternate Universe Bobby to be a screw-up, even going so far as to insult Bobby on not being able to afford a place to stay for the evening, which Jason's wife, who can't stand Jason, happily obliges to. Conveniently enough, Jason has to leave town for the evening to conduct business when it's actually a meeting with his hoe on the go, which is all fine and good for Jason's wife, who wants to get in bed with Bobby, but even though Bobby is still embodying Richard Gere in American Gigolo, still has enough morals so that he doesn't sleep with Jason's wife. Instead, Jason's wife leads Bobby to a safe full of money that Jason knows nothing about, and she gives him the 50 grand that he needs to pay off George Kennedy, but not before paying a visit to his first ex-wife to give her back payments and alimony, leaving him 25 grand behind with the narrator of the Jupiter Menace. So Bobby comes up with a quick double or nothing wager on the remaining money. Bobby wins. He's debt-free. Bobby loses. He's debt-full. As it turns out... Do yourself a favor and stay out of my casinos. Maybe a nice, long trip might be good for your health. Me leave town when I'm on a roll. So Bobby wins. And JR finally thinks to himself that things are going to be okay whether he's a part of anybody's life or not. Which is exactly what we were hoping would not happen. Because that wouldn't be the it's a wonderful life way of life. In fact, I think the only other time when someone wishing they weren't born kinda sorta backfired but still worked out was when Al Bundy met Sam Kinison. I want to live! Bundy, are you serious? 
That means I'm going to be an angel. I'm going to get my wings. I'm going to be a real angel. But here, no, 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 no. This doesn't make any sense at all. It, let's recap. Without JR, Gary would have a wonderful life. Sue Ellen would have a wonderful life. Ray Krebs would have a wonderful life. His rivals are definitely having a wonderful life. And the lady who shot JR would not only have a wonderful but questionable life, she'd also be alive too. The only negative impacts were that his other wife would be a would-be murderer, and that his brother the saint would figuratively and literally gamble his life away. So now, only one question remains. With so many people better off for not having known JR, what was the point of all this? Especially when this is supposed to be the last chapter in a series that many were heavily invested in. What's more, what's the point of a guardian angel trying to pull someone from the brink of suicide when clearly the world is better off without him? I mean, it's almost as though the angel is playing on our team or something. I'm the same as the first time I met you. Then why don't you go ahead and kill yourself? And send you back to heaven a failure? <laughs> You'll never become an angel. Angel. <laughs> What makes you think I'm from heaven? <laughs> oh my god, what a nightmare. Whew. Oh, thanks, Satan. For a second, I thought the show was going to go straight off the deep end. Thankfully, this is the second time that the series would use the dream trope to negate everything. We all remember the first, don't we? Good morning. So... Maybe this was less an It's a Wonderful Life homage and more a Christmas carol. Yeah, yeah, that has to be it. Scrooge dreamed about his ghosts and he used the experience to change his ways. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what's going to happen. JR will finally see the light after 14 years you and... You thought it was a dream? Come on. Do it. Seriously. Nobody loves you. Like... Seriously, seriously. I know we here in the underworld kind of thrive on self-torture, but... I didn't think we actually talked people into doing this. Get it over with. Holy shit, they are! The show is ending its run by convincing the greatest TV anti-hero of all time to blow his brains out. Granted, the real Larry Hagman was nothing like him, and he was a really good actor, but J.R. Ewing down here? Ooh, think of the PR this place would get. Think of what it could do for tourism, and... Oh, Bobby, why'd you have to show up now to be a do-gooder? That's right. Just one shot. Yes, listen to the Oscar winner. Welcome in Bienvenue, welcome. Welcome to hell, welcome to hell, welcome to hell. That's all it'll take. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it! <laughs> Come on, JR, hell sucks enough as it is down here. You showing up can turn this place into an even bigger tourist trap than when Hitler showed up. You know how long ago that was? Do it! Did he do it? Did he do it? Oh my god. Why am I seeing an executive producer credit? I want to see proof that he did it! Don't show me the closing credits! I want to know if he did it! You can't end the final episode of a TV series on a cliffhanger! What the fuck happened to JR? I mean, they had to have known that the show was coming to an end. Why leave people guessing? There's nothing else left. I refuse to give one more point of criticism until I find out what happened to JR. Is he in hell or not? I... Oh, now what? What the? Dallas? 1996? What is this? Why now, JR? Why what? Five years ago. I come home, I hear a gunshot, I run up to the bedroom, find you holding a pistol, just blew a hole in your mirror. You're babbling some nonsense about the devil. The next morning you're gone. 
I haven't spoken to you, Jr. ten times in the last five years, so why are you back? Well, I told you, Bobby. Daddy always said I had the devil in me, and I just got rid of it. I know what you told me. I want to know why you're back. I figure it's time the Ewing brothers got back together again. So, we just wasted two hours. I'm going to calmly and quietly bring myself to the Nine Circles before I rip the surface of the world a new fault line. I'll be fine. I'll... I'll... Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Let's talk about the series on the whole first. As we mentioned time and again, the show was the absolute epitome of what greed and lust in the 1980s meant when the show was at its peak. Especially if you got in J.R. Ewing's way and wound up invoking his wrath. And on some occasions, violence and treachery would also be invoked in order for all three to take place. And even at the show's lowest and sometimes strangest of creative energies, they don't mess around with the formula too much. In a 1991 obituary for the show written by Trustman Sanger of the Washington Post, the overall sentiment of the show and its anti-hero was felt this way. Quote, What is it about this Texan anti-hero that's made him so endlessly fascinating? Well, what can you say about a man who causes the miscarriage of his brother's first baby, who sends his sane wife off to a sanitarium, then sleeps with her sister, who routinely blackmails business competitors even if he has to fabricate evidence to do so, that he loves his daddy, his daddy's oil company, and his own sons enough to redeem him in the eyes of viewers. And when Robert Foxworth passed on the role of J.R. as Too Nasty, Larry Hagman stepped into his boots and helped revolutionize primetime television. Suddenly, serialized dramas littered the primetime terrain and season-ending cliffhangers begat weekly wallops of wonderment. But none of the imitators came close to the quality of the original. The network searched for a rich, scheming meanie to compete with the likes of J.R., but none was a match for J.R., end quote. But then we get to this... This was supposed to be the ending of all of that. There was no more to be planned. In fact, in every piece of information I could find about this one episode of television, it looked very much like season 14 was indeed going to be the last one and that this last episode was planned ahead of time. So for them to end the series on a presumed cliffhanger that wouldn't be resolved until five years later in a TV movie seems highly ludicrous, especially when you end a TV show. Because when you end a TV show, you damn well better make sure that all the loose ends are tied up. And if you do come back, have those TV movies be standalone tales that are independent from the main show. People have moved on by that point. The characters should be allowed to do the same. But let's just presume for a second that not one, but two follow-up TV movies and the 2012 reboot series on cable would never have been born. Just ignore all that for a second. If that was the case, I can't think of a shittier way to end a series by killing off the character that made the show what it was. J.R. Ewing was a number of things to a number of people, but no matter how bad he played it up, he was Dallas, and the show would have been nothing without him. Which brings us back to the episode in question and all of that It's a Wonderful Life nonsense. In practically every adaptation, homage, or even rip-off to the story, whoever's filling the George Bailey role ultimately chooses to live out his or her life no matter what consequences lie ahead. Once again, if you ignore the TV movies and the reboot, this would have probably been one of the only times in recorded history where one's life wasn't wonderful enough to keep going. Which, by the way, goes completely against anything that J.R. ever stood for. He would never back down that easy, and seeing him presumably take his own life in the end may be the ultimate heresy towards the show. 
But of course, in the real fictional world, JR keeps going. Because once again, as we find out five years later... Well, I told you about it. Daddy always said I had the devil in me and I just got rid of it. Which makes all of the past 90 minutes completely pointless. So much, in fact, that I had to steal a trophy from a British game show and personally award it to this one episode of television. So congratulations, Dallas. You're now the recipient of... All because you felt the need to lure the 22 million people who tuned into this show hoping for a better payoff to the series instead got lured into an overall sense of fraud. And I thought George Bailey had issues. The Dallas finale earned seven out of nine circles of telehell. And another thing about this show that kind of bothered me, and this is strictly an off-the-record nitpick, the fact that they would do an It's a Wonderful Life homage, not just as the show's final episode, but also in the middle of spring 1991, when this could have easily been established as a Christmas episode. An easier place to put a cliffhanger. JR pulls the trigger, and then we don't find out what happens until later that January, knowing that there was still four months of show to go. That would have made a lot more sense logistically. What the... I didn't think my Palm Pilot made Apple noises. Uh, excuse me. Uh, time to open the gift. Oh, right. I, I, I got that package when I reviewed that Gilligan's Island TV movie, but the tag says don't open till Christmas. Uh, it's close enough. Open now. Anything you say, outdated piece of technology? Why do I always get unmarked videotapes? I hate surprises. Especially down here. Oh well, let's see what's on it. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. Oh, sweet Satan, not them again. Like their mother, the youngest one in curls. I'm still being punished for what I said about the ghostwriter, aren't I? Well, forget it. I nearly OD'd on morphine the last time I talked about them. That is not happening again. There. No tape to watch? No problem. I... Alice! Alice! What a happy surprise! Okay, fine, fine. I can cut things up with a chainsaw all day. No TV to watch them on? No problem. And you can't make me! What the hell? Get me out of these chains! Next time on Telehell. That's the way we all became the Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. That's the way we became the Brady Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. As we said in this episode, there were a lot of details that we intentionally left out on purpose for brevity's sake. But if there's anything within the actual subject of the episode that you think we missed out on, feel free to give us a buzz in our new complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. Also, as a reminder, Telehell is now a bi-weekly program, which means a very Brady Christmas is going to be happening two weeks from now. Minus two days, because we're actually going to be dropping this show on Christmas Eve. 
That's Christmas Eve, same time, same place. Our announcer is Mike Porter. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash podcast. You have the attention span of a rhesus monkey.